I know y'all get tired of hearing me saying this, but don't you appreciate Matt and our choir and orchestra leading us each and every week? We are so blessed to have them and sacrificially serve and lead us each and every week. I think I'm supposed to start by saying happy Groundhog Day, right? Has there ever been a more ridiculous holiday on our calendar than Groundhog Day? Here we are in the year 2020, and we're looking at some groundhog to see if he sees his shadow to whether or not we're going to have what spring or not and how, what time it comes. I did hear the other day that if a pastor sees his shadow today, that you have six more weeks of the same sermon series. Um, <laughs> You only wish you were that lucky. <laughs> we have a lot longer than six weeks to finish the book of John. Um, but we are going to take a reprieve from that today. And this morning we're going to be um, in Psalm chapter 78, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles and, and prepare for that. One thing that they say in history is that the one thing we know about history or we learn from history is that we never learn from history, right? If you study the Bible... If you look at church history, one of the things that you will see over and over again is that even the people of God, we seem to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. If you look at the chosen people of God, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, you can see kind of a microcosm of that. Especially in the book of Judges, there, there's a cycle that continues. And you know how the cycle goes. It begins with the people of God crying out to God for, for him to save them, to spare them from some calamity that's about to happen. And so God hears their prayers and he, he comes in. Sometimes it's a miracle that he comes in and he rescues them. Some time passes and then what happens? They forget about God. They forget about his faithfulness. They rebel against him. And then some other disaster, typically in the Old Testament, was another nation that was going to come in and capture them. So once again, they cry out to God and they say, God, we need you. We, we trust in you. And the cycle continues over and over again. In Psalm chapter 78, we're going to see again how this is illustrated one more time. This psalm was actually written towards the end of King David's life. Now, most of the Psalms that we have in, in that Old Testament book were written by King David himself, but this Psalm was actually written by another man by the name of Asaph. Now, he was an attendant, a servant, who was in um, King David's uh, uh, kingdom that was there. And from what we know, he has written at least 12 of the Psalms that we have in our Old Testament. We're going to see in Psalm 78, which is actually the second longest psalm next to Psalm 119, that Asaph is going to review the history of his people. And what he's going to do is he is going to point out their forgetfulness of God. He's going to show them how many times they have forgotten God's mercy that he has provided to them. And in all honesty, he's going to highlight their faithlessness and their failures as God's chosen people. Now let's make sure we understand the purpose of why he's doing this. He's not, he's not reviewing and going over all their failures and saying, here's all the things you've done wrong, just to, to point a finger in their face and to make them feel bad or discourage them. But instead, he wants his readers to understand what all of this means. And church, if we will read this psalm today, more importantly... If we will heed the warnings from Asaph that were written 3,000 years ago, then I think that as God's people, 
today that maybe we will avoid making some of the same mistakes that God's people have made over and over again. We always talk about the importance of reading the Bible in context. Remember that what we're about to read, that he's not writing this to those that that didn't know God. He's not writing this to people who had never seen God's mighty acts or didn't know the scriptures, but he's writing this to those who knew God, those who claimed to be followers of God. See, Asaph is, is warning the people of Judah. He's saying, listen, don't imitate the faithless ancestors or your godless neighbors who have made a conscious choice to disobey the Lord. Judah's ancestors, their neighbors, they had abandoned the faith of their fathers. And in turn, what they did is they established a religion in their own making. And instead, his encouragement is two things. He says, guys, I want you to make sure that, first of all, that you know and that you understand the Scriptures. And not only that you know the Scriptures, but it's important that you pass them down to your children. Let's look at the first four verses of Psalm chapter 78. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known. Here's the key, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but instead what? We will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. I think that if Asaph were here today, if he were to write to us in Decatur, Alabama in 2020, I think that he would give us, church, the exact same warning that he was giving the people of Judah then. I think what he would tell us is, guys, don't abandon the faith of your fathers. Do not waver from the tried and true, the faithless word of God, no matter how appealing it may be to stray, no matter how much you want to fit in with everyone else, stay true to God's timeless, inerrant, holy word of God. Now, I know in 2020, most of us were raised in church, or at least we have some kind of church background. So the chances of us, I'm specifically talking to those who claim to have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're probably not going to stray from Christianity into some other form of organized religion. But what may happen to us, what is so easy for so many of us to trip into, to fall into the trap of worshiping not the God of the Bible, but we begin to worship a God who thinks like us a God who acts like us, a God who who responds like us, a God who we make into what? Our own image. Hear me on church. Hear me on this. When we do this, we are actually making ourselves into God. And what we do is then we say we set the standard. We set the expectation of what feels good to us, what feels right to us. And now the new religion that we are a part of is a religion that we get to set what is true, what is right, and what is wrong instead of trusting the God of the Bible. So what it looks like is this. Instead of trusting the God of Scripture... 
Instead of trusting in the revealed word of truth, we end up saying things like this. Well, I don't worship a God who would fill in the blank. Well, surely God wouldn't want you to feel fill in the blank. Or we say things like, well, don't you think that after 2,000 years that Jesus walked on this earth, that surely he wouldn't mean that today? Church, hear me on this. It is a slippery slope when we begin to form God into our own image to make us feel better about ourselves and to make sure that we don't stand out, that we don't seem like we're judgmental or that we are sticking out or that we um, are standing out in a world where we want to fit in with our friends and with our coworkers. This is why I think Psalm chapter 78 still speaks to us today. I hope that you will hear these words from Asaph and that he's sharing with the people of Judah and that we will stay true to the Lord. That as the Lord's church, as his chosen vessel, that we as a church family, that we will recommit ourselves to two things. The first thing is that we will recommit ourselves as a church to knowing the Scriptures. Not just on Sunday morning, but that we would make it a personal responsibility that we are going to study. We are going to know who God is. We are going to know the God of the Bible. And secondly, we wouldn't stop with just knowing the Scriptures, but then we would recommit ourselves that we are going to teach the Scriptures to our children. Because listen to me, the implication is still true today. Don't miss this, church. And that is that the message and the importance of Christ and his teachings, they can all be lost in one generation. Let me say that again. The message and the importance of Christ and his teachings, they can all be lost in one generation. If we don't believe it, Look at Europe. Cathedrals that used to be filled with worshipers singing praises to God that are now mosques, that are now restaurants, that are now abandoned. Why? Because they stopped knowing the Scripture and they stopped teaching it to their children. And today, Europe is only 2.5% evangelical Christian. Look at the next four verses. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but instead keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation." whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful. Now, before Seth King comes up and talks about how our student ministry is aiming to equip and to teach the next generation not only how to know God's Word, but to obey God's Word, briefly, I want to share with you just three things that I think we can take away from those last four verses that we just read. Number one, I think that we as a church and in our homes need to be reminded that we are to teach our children to know God. 
seems so foundational, seems so basic. But you see, we want our children, we want the students in our church to have a firm grasp, to have a firm knowledge of who God is. Verse 6, he says, that the next generation might, what's that word in yellow? Know them. Friends, it's impossible to love God, and that's our ultimate aim, is we want our children, we want our students not just to know, we want them to love God, but it's impossible to love God if they don't first know who He is. That is the primary and the most important job that we have as a church and that you have as parents and grandparents in your home is to teach them to know the Lord. Because we want them to know not only who he is today, but how he acted in the past, what his laws are, what his decrees are, and what his standards are, so they will know this is true and this is our guide that we will follow. Because church, if we do not teach our children to follow Christ, then make no mistake about it, the world will teach them how not to follow him. Let's be honest here for a second. The world has a really easy job. All the world has to do is convince our children, convince the teenagers just to lean into their natural tendencies, just to go with their selfishness, to go with their their need to say, I'm going to look out for number one at all costs, no matter what it means to someone else, to say that I am going to seek immediate pleasure at the expense of what the Lord is wanting me to do. But as followers of Jesus, hear me on this, we must teach our children that life is more than about them. The world does not revolve around them. We exist as individuals for two purposes, to know God and to make Him known. That's why you and I were placed on this earth. If you've been with us long, you've heard me say over and over again, The worst advice we can give our teenagers today is to follow their hearts. Sounds good. Oh, just follow your hearts. Church, we shouldn't say follow your hearts. We should say surrender your hearts to Jesus. Surrender your heart so that you will give up your own selfish desires, your own tendencies, and you will say, it's not my will, but yours. The world behind me, the cross before me, I'm not going to follow my selfishness. Instead, I'm going to submit my life to Jesus Christ, and I'm going to follow him. That is what we are to teach our children. We teach them to know God. Secondly, this passage says that we teach our children to hope in God. Verses 6 and 7 goes on to say, The children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Why? So that they should, here's the key phrase, set their hope in God. Knowledge should lead to hope. The more you know something, The more you've tested something to be true, the more confidence you have that you can trust it, right? You see, what goes into the head, hopefully, eventually comes out through the heart. Listen to me. Knowledge about God is not the end goal. Remember James, the half-brother of Jesus. He says, even the demons in hell know Jesus and what? They shudder. No, the aim is not knowledge. The end goal is not to have information, but the end goal is that knowledge would lead to a transformed heart. 
We want our kids' knowledge to cause them to set their hope in God above everything else. And finally, we are to teach our children to obey God. Verse 7 says, and not, and not forget the works of God, but what? Keep his commandments. Church, we have not succeeded in our God-given responsibility. If our children, if our students' heads are filled with all sorts of Bible stories, but their hearts haven't been changed. If they know all sorts of information about God, if they know all the stories, they've got everything memorized, but instead their behavior is contrary to the commands found in Scripture. I want to be very delicate here. I want to make sure that you hear what I'm saying. I am not saying that if you do everything right, if you teach your kids the Bible, if you bring them to church every Sunday and Wednesday, if you pray over them, then all of a sudden they're going to know about God, they're going to set their up, and they're going to obey. There are dozens of you here in this room. You tried your hardest. You did everything according to the Bible. But listen, your children still have their own free will. So I'm not saying this is some magic formula you can plug in and automatically it's going to work. But what I am saying is that our ultimate goal, our ultimate desire is that our kids will know God and as they know him, it will cause them to set their hope in him and that will then lead to them obeying him. But here's the kicker. Here's the reality check. Do your kids, do your grandchildren see these three things lived out in you? Do they see that mom and dad know God's word? Do they see you reading and studying and putting God's word into practice? When's the last time your kids saw you with an open Bible in your lap? Do your kids know that you set your hope in God even when the world is crumbling around, even when everything, nothing's going your way on your worst day? Do they see that mom and dad, that grandparents, their ultimate hope is in God, not in anything that this world can provide? Do your children, do your grandchildren see that you obey God even when you have to go against the grain? Because listen to me. You can pray all you want, but the chances are your kids will not stand out in this generation for Christ if you blend in with your lost friends, your lost coworkers, and those that you live with. You cannot understand why our kids would stand out for Christ if you blend in with the rest of the world. So our ultimate hope the greatest desire that we should have in our preschool ministry, in our children's ministry, in our student ministry is this, that the next generation may set their hope in God. Can there be anything greater that we as a church would give our lives for? That we would give our resources, we would give our time, we would fast tomorrow, many of us, to say, God, we pray that our next generation, that they would set their hope in you. So how are we doing in our student ministry? When it's never been uh, harder when it's, uh, to reach someone, 
for the gospel of Christ. It's never been easier. Let me say that again. I think you're going to be encouraged after you hear from our own Seth King after this video about how we are going about reaching people and making disciples. My favorite thing about First Students is just being able to worship with everyone else and just having that good community that I can always trust and come back to. And yeah, it's just really great. Um, it's just the friendships you make, like the friendships I've made here is like just with people I never thought I'd get to know. My favorite thing about coming to the Lofts would be worship. I just love just like seeing everyone get together and worship the Lord. It's just, it's so cool to see. and. Yeah. Um, I think the loft is powerful because during the worship services, uh, like just to see people lift their hands in praise, that's just powerful to me. People in the loft are loving because the first time I ever came here, I already felt like I was a part of the church. And the student ministry has met many needs in my life, but one of them that it's met is just like, again, those accountability partners. And it's just so like, it's just like a calming feeling to know that you have people that you can go to and talk to in the student ministry whenever you need anything. Yeah, it, it does make me feel joyful and it, it, it's like, it gives me, it, it helps me to have more trust in them. And uh, it also, it does help me to reach out to more people and it like builds more confidence in me. And just to know that you have friends that worship or are believers. Y'all give me one second. Hey, students, I'm just gonna turn the student pastor switch, switch for a second. Um, if there's anything that you can gain from the past 45 minutes that you've been in here is that you have a leadership team that deeply cares about you, that longs to see you follow God's will, that longs to see you included in a movement that started the day Jesus gave his life on the cross and the day he rose again. And it's not just because it's this important pitch that we're giving this morning to center our focus on student ministry to just, hey guys, by the way, we're thinking about you. No, no, we are. We believe in you. We believe in what God can do with you. When I sit in that seat on Sunday mornings, I don't sit in the student section. I sit in a section of soldiers people that we send on behalf of the church knowing that you can accomplish just as much as everyone else sitting in the seat. And church, aren't we thankful for a student, a student ministry that is supported by a leadership that we have? That's rare. You know, I was blessed to grow up in a church where the pastor literally painted on the atrium of the church in massive letters, whoever wants the next generation will get them. Whoever wants them. And, and Blake asked me to come up and share the vision of kind of what's going on in student ministry. And I could stand up here and offer numbers and statistics. I'm not a numbers guy, but I do believe numbers represent souls. I believe they represent people. I believe that they represent um, the very thing that we as believers should pursue. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more that I believe the only way you can hear me and, and hear what's going on in our student ministry is to hear my heart. And so 
I'm not gonna lie to you in this moment. I'm nervous because I'm just gonna expose everything about um, my pursuit of not only the Lord, but also as a student ministry as First Baptist Church of Decatur. And I, I pray that in this moment, you gain an understanding of me personally, but also our mission as a staff and a church as a whole with regards to our student ministry. So when I got here in, in uh, July, when I had gone through the interview process, they sat down and you know, one of the things they said was that, hey, Seth, we're gonna, we're gonna do our best to um, make you successful. And what they meant by that was they were just offering their support, right? That they were gonna do what they can to see our student ministry find, quote unquote, success in kingdom standards. But you know, the minute I heard that and the minute I walked um, out to eat with Garth and Jack, that was the true test of whether or not I wanted to be here was to eat with Garth and Jack. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just kidding. Um, no, the, the, the enemy immediately began to attack. They're gonna do whatever they can to make you successful. He took those words and kind of twisted them. And then immediately, thankfully, the Lord came in and counteracted that thought with, just watch me define successful. Watch how I have defined successful. You know, one of the things that, that I asked for when I first got here, and I, I believe the team was in unison favor of doing this, was hiring an associate um, specifically that was a woman to reach our girls. And, and really that comes down to the fact that um, I was born with a twin sister and was raised in a house with three women and I still don't understand them. So the only effective way <laughs> to do that was to hire a woman. No, and Caroline Turner joined our team um, within the past two months. And we've seen growth. We've seen the loft numbers explode. We've seen kids reaching other kids for Christ. We saw over 20 decisions from D-Now and we've been able to witness that in baptism over the past three weeks. And I'm that annoying guy that constantly is asking you to celebrate even more for the sake of what God's doing in our student ministry. But I believe in that. I truly believe in that. So before we get really far into my heart, I do wanna go through something really fast. I wanna talk about the generation that we're reaching because there's never been a generation quite like Generation Z. Gen Z. I wanna give you some attributes of this generation. And again, I wanna reiterate the, the stat that Blake gave us a couple weeks ago. 60% of our students are walking away from the church after graduating high school. And so we're losing a huge amount of students that are actually leaving the church. And so there's, if anything, a mission that is in front of us, right? Other than the fact that we provide a stable environment, but that we're preparing students as they leave. Listen to this about Generation Z. Generation Z is the future of the global economy. They, have already, they already have control of more than $200 billion in direct spending. And then in the meantime, they influence more than $600 billion in spending by their parents. They're also considered a sober generation, which means they're very optimistic and driven about their personal ambitions but pragmatic and aware of forces beyond their control. And so they're very smart. They are ethnically diverse. They're savers, they're not spenders, and that could be a reflection of growing up amid the uncertainty of the post 9-11 tragedy or the post Great Recession world. They are an on-demand generation. Can I get an amen for Amazon and Apple TV? <laughs> you know, they are expert, expert online researchers and shoppers. Did you know that this generation goes to the store as a last resort? Oh, I'm not going to the store if I have my online thing, right? And I'm, I'm 23, so I fall, I'm literally the oldest you can be to be in Gen Z. And so I'm kind of a combination of a millennial and Gen Z. And so reading these, I can kind of relate to an extent. You know, the other thing though about being online researchers and being experts of that is that they know what the standard is around the world. 
They can easily see what's going on in our nation. They can watch videos from other churches, other athletic programs, other extracurricular activities, and so they have this idea of what it should be. You know, one of the things that we have to consider when doing that, and Caroline and I, is that we, we have to give them not only our best, but we have to make sure that what we are doing is efficient in comparison to what they are gaining in other areas based on their research online. And so what does this mean for us? Well, this means that when we go into the loft, every chair is touching and perfectly in line so that when they come in, they're getting the very best thing that we're offering. Caroline, has to, she has one job a week that is consistent, and she has to turn in an article regarding student ministry, highlighting the important parts of that article so that we can both review that and hopefully implement some things from her study that week. We're constantly researching to stay on top of the trend that Gen Z is setting. They prefer fresh ingredients over processed foods. So words like natural, organic, and sustainable grab their attention. This is why we can't just do pizza every Wednesday anymore, right? They aren't seduced by high-end luxury brands. They actually, they prize value and personal style more than designer labels. I'm totally a pro, I mean, thrift shops on the weekends in college. That's what we did. You know, what's cool about that though, and I thought about this too, if, if they're seduced by high-end and luxury brands, we're actually calling students to a lifestyle of the complete opposite, right? Our focus isn't on the high-end, the most um, luxurious item or the things of this earth. We're calling them to abandon those things for the sake of Christ. Can you imagine if a generation who already has a step forward in that mindset grabs a hold of what the gospel truly is? They're farther ahead of all generations when it comes to mobile payments and bank transactions. It's in their pocket on their cell phones. They're career focused. They're ready to work hard, think for themselves and pursue new opportunities. This is why missions is vital in our student ministry. This is why missions is vital in our church at First Baptist. With career focused, with a career focused generation and we send them out knowing that they can accomplish not only their ambitions, but also accomplish kingdom work alongside of that, powerful. And as the most ethically diverse generation in history, they, they want to be both locally and globally rooted. Here's an interesting stat. Um, we see that yeah, Gen Z is, 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 is really, it really is the most ethical generation. But listen to this stat. They're about to be the last generation that is majority white Caucasian. And then they're also pursuing the idea of being diverse, equal, free of discrimination and alienation of poverty. You know what this tells me? Is that our generation, Generation Z, just wants to be a part of a movement that makes change. They wanna be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. And so as a student ministry team, what better thing to offer than Christianity? A movement that started centuries ago, over 2,000 years ago. But overall, they're confident and motivated. And also, they're not naive. They're self-assured. They see a bright future. They were born into an internet-enabled world, recognizing its limitations. And overall, I think Blake said it right. There's never been a harder time to reach students. But I would argue this. I wanna change that statement for our perspective for these next few minutes. There's never been a more valuable time to reach students. Think about the attributes that I just read. If we reach this generation for the sake of the gospel, can you imagine what this generation can accomplish? This is a completely different group of people than our millennial generation. 
It's a different mindset. It's a do-it-yourself generation. It's a pursuit of the thing that is greater than themselves. And so, but the problem is, is I can sit here and give you things about Generation Z. I, I could talk about what students were reaching and what's going on in their lives, but here's the bottom line. None of this matters. Anything that I've said so far does not matter if you are not concerned about the lostness of this generation. You can learn all you want about church programming, student activities, whatever it is, strategies to to reach students through um, maybe advertising or marketing, whatever it is, you can learn everything. You can be the best at it, but until you have a passion for the lostness of this generation, it means nothing. And I want you to hear my heart in this. And what we're about to walk through real quick is really a reality check, a self-reflection on us as a church to make sure that when we approach the idea of student ministry and one day sending these students off into the world, that we have done it effectively with the right perspective. Now, what I'm about to give, and if there's anything that I wish that I would leave um, in terms of, of my reputation, it's, it's this. What I'm about to give is very pastoral. It's very pastoral. But my passion for the Lord is not hindered by my position. It is not hindered by my age as a 23-year-old. It is not hindered by the amount of knowledge I do or do not have. And it is definitely not hindered by the amount of wisdom that I carry in my back pocket. And I will win the battle of being the most passionate about reaching those students in this room all day, every day. But my, my hope and my prayer is that as a church, you partner with me to accomplish the greater good of reaching this next generation. And it starts with addressing our lifestyle as believers. The first thing that I wanna address is a lifestyle of obedience toward God. First John 2, three through six says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In high school, I remember running into my third grade teacher, second grade teacher uh, in in a market uh, place. I think it was Walmart. And she stopped, oh, Seth, how are you doing? You know, what's your plans for life? And and my mom was beside me and, and, and I said, I wanna go into ministry. You know what her response was? Second grade teacher at a, a private Christian school. Are you sure you wanna do that? Because there's no money involved in that. (laughs) But when you take that step of obedience, the Lord blesses you by showing him who he truly is. You wanna know who God is? You wanna know what he does, how he functions? You You wanna know how you can be used for something greater than making money? You wanna see how God can use students to change the world? By the way, many of the majority, if not all of the revivals sparked in our nation began with students. That is who our God is. And when we walk in obedience in him, well, we begin to mirror the heart of our God. What about a lifestyle of confession as Jesus is the Christ? First John 2, 22-23, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Here's a a note, and and a lot of this sounds familiar to our students because we address these as soon as I got here. But hey, church, um, humility attracts God's grace. Humility attracts God's grace. 
The result of D-Now 2020 was not because we put together a, a ridiculously cool stage and it was loud music and it was hype and we were jumping up and down. The result of D-Now 2020, seeing over 20 kids give decisions, was rooted in the result of the prayer that took place weeks before. If you were here on Wednesday night, you were given names to pray for. Our staff were given specific names to pray for. Caroline and I spent a few days in the loft praying over the seats every morning. We prayed before every service that started in, in the D-Now weekend. And what happened? God showed up. What? <laughs> That's what happens? When you confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and you humble yourself, that's when we'll see God move. Ongoing repentance of sin, 1 John 3, 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps, keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If we as a church wanna believe in this next generation, we wanna believe that what's taking place in the loft on Wednesday nights, we wanna believe what's taking place on Sunday nights and Sunday circles in the choir room with Matt, in Chick-fil-A on Tuesday mornings during prayer time and one-on-one relational time throughout the community. If we wanna believe in that, we must address our issue first with our sin and gain the ground back that Satan took back from you. When you gain that ground back and you push back against the enemy in your personal life, well, God begins to strengthen you and show you who he is through you. And we come together and we gain the ground back that Satan had won over in this world and through this generation. That is the beginning of change. This generation partnered along with you as the local church. Second to last, as believers, we should exhibit a genuine love towards other believers. Going on in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So my question to you this morning is we can talk about student ministry all day. We can talk about what's going on in the loft. We can get excited about the numbers that are showing. We can look at all the change happening in our church as a result of what God's doing. But are you burdened for the lost? Did it trouble you when you heard the stat that 60% of our generation is leaving the doors of the church because of what their experience has been in the past? This is more than caring about the future generation of our church. This is about caring for the generation that's gonna reach the other generation that follows them. The word for that is legacy. Do you feel the weight of the miracle of salvation? One of my fears is that we get so used to what's happening above us in the baptistry and in and, and life in general that salvation is like, oh, salvation. <laughs> he got saved. Good for him. Good decision. I'm going to go give him coach's butt slap and call him out and say, hey, great job. Good, good luck. <laughs> Do you understand the weight of the miracle of salvation? that God with his divine hand reached into the soul of that student and turned it and said, you are dead, but because of my grace towards you and nothing you did, I have turned it and brought it to life. This is something that has the power to change the world. And what has happened in our student ministry is a reflection of the humility that he has seen in our staff alone and the humility in all of the Bible that he's seen in his people and he's blessed it by moving. Church, where are we? Where are you in your walk with the Lord? 
Do you have a genuine love for other believers? Do you have ongoing repentance of sin? Do you have a lifestyle of confession that Jesus is the Christ? Do you have a lifestyle of obedience toward God? And lastly, do you have a lifestyle that represents that you welcome the presence of God's Spirit? Hey, Seth, we're Southern Baptists. You know, that Spirit stuff. (laughs) You know, that's kind of, you know, shakes shakes some things up. (laughs) I don't know if you remember this, but our Who's Your One video we played a while back, um, Abby Glover, after seeing Life Change in her, she mentioned something. She said, you know, the Lord moved when, when we sang about the Holy Spirit and then Seth taught on the Holy Spirit. And the thing about the Holy Spirit is, is that the Holy Spirit is God's agent to see that change take place. And so when we ignore the presence of the Holy Spirit, we ignore the God and the creator of all of the world who has the hand and control of everything to make the change that we hope and pray to see. You see, the fruit, or the fruit of the Spirit contains is, and is rooted in the, the, the burden for the lost. Our, our fruits of the Spirit that we portray is because we care for the people that we're attempting to reach. But here's something that I think we need to address before we close today. Not only these attributes of who we should be as believers, but um, maybe this statement will resonate with some of you. Don't mistake your spirit of selfishness for the Spirit of God. Man, am I convicted of that so often? Don't mistake your spirit of selfishness for the spirit of God. Just because we have the wisdom and the knowledge of what is in God's word does not mean we get to determine the movement of the spirit. Does not mean that we can take the credibility of decisions that are being made on our behalf and say, you know what, because of what we decide to do in this church, that's what's gonna happen and that's what's gonna make God move because the reality is God's not gonna move with his spirit as his agent unless God wants to move with his spirit as his agent. You may know the scriptures, but ultimately if you don't, yeah, we don't know what's best. You know, our preferences concerning programs and, and set lists on Sunday mornings and small group material and buildings, it means nothing if we don't humble ourselves before the Lord and relentlessly seek Him for something that's greater than ourselves. Church, if you want to see and reach the next generation, and we want to continue praying and hoping for the momentum that the Lord has blessed this. By the way, hey, what's been going on in the past three weeks is rare. It's rare. I have to remind myself that all the time because I visit so many student ministers that are begging to see two or three kids make a decision. And when they do, they celebrate like crazy. But yet we see 20 decisions and... We want to reach the next generation, we begin on our knees. And when we begin to get on our knees before a holy, set-apart God, and we say, Lord, we are here as a church not to gain as much from you, but to serve you and give you much, is when we begin to see God bless our efforts in the sense that he will move through you, he will grab the student ministry as a whole, push them in the direction that we've been able to see and witness recently, and oh my gosh, you talk about a world change. What began with 12 teenagers is now something a part of the world, and what can begin with the 30 or 40 that's over here can really shake and turn upside down Decatur, Alabama. And so my question to you is, do you have a heart for this? Because I'm not talking about the heart for students, I'm really talking about a heart and a burden for the lost. My hope is that we would address ourselves and that we would reflect ourselves to see where we are personally. Because I can tell you right now, as a student ministry team, this is my heart. This is what I stay awake at night thinking about. What's not being done, Lord? What what is something you need for me to do in order to see your kingdom continue to be expanded?
So my question for you is, will you join me? Will you join me in partnering and praying for our students? And so that we would just stay out of the way of the Holy Spirit and he would continue to move as if he has in the past three weeks. I'm so excited about what God's doing in our student ministry. And I'm really humbled to be a part of it because I can think of a thousand other people that need to be in my spot. (laughs) But when we believe that the Lord can do all things through us, we're, we're believing that the Lord can do all things through us because of what he has ultimately done for us. At this time, I'm gonna invite Blake to kind of close things down. Thank you, church, for being receptive to my heart this morning and allowing me the time.